When you think of Southern rock, you probably think of something that sounds like this. Not something like this. But that's the sound of Lee Baines III, one of the most exciting and thoughtful musicians to come out of the South. In fact, Jonathan Poneman, the co-founder of Sub Pop Records, which assigned groups like Nirvana, Soundgarden, and Father John Misty, once called Lee Baines III and the Glory Fires the future of rock and roll. But at present, they're also a band deeply committed to engaging with the South's past. They take on the South with both a brutal honesty and a poetic spirit. This is The Reckon Interview, and I'm your host, John Hammettree. This week, we're talking with Lee Baines about how his Birmingham roots influence his lyrics, including his grandmother's memories of Bull Connor and his own memories of Eric Robert Rudolph the stereotypes the Glory Fires have faced as a southern rock band, and why the man who once sang about nailing his feet to the south side of Birmingham eventually moved to Atlanta. And of course, whether or not Atlanta is the south at all. So kick your feet up and set a spell. This is The Reckon Interview. Lee Baines, thanks for coming in for the Reckon interview. Thanks for having me, man. Uh, our regular listeners will know that you are hearing Lee Baines to start and close every show. Uh, D Reconstructed <laughs> is uh, he has been gracious enough to let us use as our theme music. So I want to dive in and first talk about that album okay. and the ethos that you bring to it because I think that's sort of what Reckon is all about too. Cool. There's a lot of punk rock in the United States and, and around the world, but very little of it is going to engage, you know, reconstruction in the South <laughs> right. and, uh, and as you call it, some ancient truths and ugly old lies. <laughs> and so I'm curious as to how that became kind of your driving force as a musician. I think the, the sort of ethos of I guess what I'd call like punk rock kind of became my or a guiding force for me when I was a teenager and when I started going to places like the Boiler Room and Cave Nine in Birmingham. Um, I think, and it took that for me to really, I guess, feel what punk meant. I guess prior to that, I thought that punk was like a music musical genre. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and, and that had just kind of trickled down to me through CDs or through music videos or whatever. But it wasn't until then that I understood it more as an ethos um, because I saw it being lived out. I saw bands that were doing their their own thing completely that didn't sound like anything I'd ever heard and they were doing it uh, in small kind of intentional groups of people you know and uh, making music um, for the sake of the music and for the sake of like communicating something very important to them um, really without any concern for mass appeal or commercial appeal or anything like that Mm -hmm. And uh, it just kind of blew me away. I didn't know that that was a thing that really existed. <laughs> sure. Like, yeah. I thought that like, Birmingham wasn't really a punk scene. I mean, as far as I know. Yeah. I mean, and I think it was there, but it was, I wasn't aware of it until I became aware of it. And then, and it was thanks to places like Cave Nine that really fostered that, you know what I mean? And coming out of high school, so I mean, you went to Indian Springs yes. and then I think later transferred to Mountain Brook. Yes. And then went to college uh, at NYU. Yep. 
So um, was there a sense of, you know, you wanting to get out of the South for a little while, or did you think that it was going to be permanent when you went up to New York? What was your mindset leaving Birmingham? Man, it's interesting. I was, you know, growing up, I had so many conflicted feelings about being from the South. Uh, It's just difficult for me now to even, like, kind of reckon reckon with. Um, I guess I had this idea that, like, places like New York or California or whatever, that what I'd seen at Cave Nine, for instance, or on Southside, was just a a glimpse of what what a place like New York would be or California would be that these were that they would be these kind of like utopias I guess mm-hmm. of of art and like progressivism and um, diversity and stuff like that I went to New York and to go to school and pretty quickly realized that my understanding was completely sure. off you know it was the understanding of somebody who had seen a place like New York just through movies and TV and novels. And I had this sort of romanticized vision of what it would be like and got there and, and uh, realized pretty quickly, like, man, Birmingham's pretty, pretty damn special. You know what I mean? Like, because there wasn't like a cave nine, there, there wasn't a cave nine anywhere that I've been. There's only, there's only one cave. Yeah, exactly. New York, there's a completely, completely different, but. Well, I think. I don't want to project, but sure. I, I was coming through Mountain Brook a few years after you. Yeah. It's obviously a, you know a nice suburb of Birmingham. Right. For me, you know, I was a theater kid and wanted to be okay. a filmmaker, and there was this sense of like that's the place you have to go in order mm-hmm. to do that. Yeah. Um, and this is a little bit before you know kind of the democratization of video and stuff like that. But so mm-hmm. I went to school in Chicago, and you know there was this sort of sense of like okay, I need to get out of the South, I need to get out of Alabama. And then once I got there, you're fielding questions of like, wow, you're from Alabama, I can't believe you're wearing shoes. Totally, it must yep. have been tough down there. And all of a sudden, you find yourself like in this sort of unlikely advocacy role yes. for Birmingham and that really kind of started changing the way that I thought about mm. the south yeah. and you know you have these lyrics in uh, Dereconstructed and I'm curious about you know uh, to go all Terry Gross and read your lyrics to you uh, <laughs> you say they wanted meth labs and mobile homes they wanted moonlight and magnolias we gave them songs about taking your own damn stand in spite of those who define and control you and I heard that line and I thought, are you responding to sort of these national preconceptions about the South um, or are you responding to Southerners' preconceptions of themselves? Man, that's a, that's a great question. And I, <laughs> and, I, and I think really that's on that record, that's sort of what I was, again, like borrowing y'all's name again, like trying to reckon with is the way that and, and that's really something that I did start to think a lot about in New York and um, in school where I was reading a lot of writers and thinkers that I'd never encountered before. One writer who really resonated with me a lot and who just, I don't know, kind of blew my mind was Edward Said and his his book Orientalism. And okay. the, he talks about in this book essentially like the creation of the Orient in, in air quotes mm-hmm. and the way that the idea of the, the East or the Orient really says a lot more about the air quotes West and the way that the quote West thinks about itself and the world rather than an actual place Mm -hmm. in the Eastern hemisphere or whatever. The way that 
that process of like us versus them and othering and binary uh, plays out not just in the West's understanding of the rest of the world, but also themselves and the way that it sort of erases borders and boundaries and, and the way that it solidifies others and the way that it erases nuance and it influence and, and all that. So I was reading a lot of him at that time. It got me thinking about the South and, and the way that the South is characterized in national media and international media, you know, just English speaking media in general, I guess. And the way that Southerners are not only thought about by folks not from the South, but the way that we then imbibe those notions and think about ourselves. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? For me, the way that that kind of manifests a lot of times in these false binaries, like you got to be one or the other, you know, you got to be either the ineffectual Southern bell, or you have to be the, you know, violent, uh, primal rebel. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or, or, or you're either a Southerner or you're not. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're, you're this a Yankee, type of you're a Southerner. Exactly. Right. Even if the Midwest and the West are very different. Exactly. And different parts, I mean, different parts of the state of Alabama are different. You know, it's like North Fort Payne is way different from Selma. Um, when you're touring, so, do people make assumptions about you as a Southern band? I mean, do they think that Skinner is coming to town or do they, you know, <laughs> what, do, what do people think when they first hear you? We, we have, uh, we have definitely dealt with some weird, (laughs) (laughs) some weird sort of expectation along those lines. Yeah. I think the further away from the South you get, it, it can get really weird. Yeah. Give me um, an example. At times, like by far the weirdest that we can, that, that we talk about was we were playing a show in Sweden Okay. And uh, a fella showed up to the show in a, like a Confederate cavalry hat, like hmm. one of the old, you know what I mean? Like yeah, a cowboy yeah. hat looking. Yeah. And we were just like, dude, what are you doing? Like, and I, we, we tried to just be like, man, that's not, that's not cool. And like, why, did, but, but trying to like, you know, not, not, not trying to like jump down his throat, but just be like, what are you doing? Like, what do you think you're doing? And right. He just, and he was like, you know, it's, you know, it's like the South or whatever. And we're like, dude, if you walked around Birmingham wearing one of those, like people would just, you know, throw yeah, you stuff at you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You get your ass kicked or, you know, it's like, that's not something we do. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? And it's not something somebody should do. And like, so yeah, I don't know. You run into weird stuff like that, or but it, when you are touring the South, I mean, obviously there are people all over the South that do proudly wear the Confederate flag. Right. You, even if you are a son of the South, you show up and say, you know, go to hell, Robert E. Lee. Right. And start attacking <laughs> some of the sacred cows, which you, which you do in your concerts. Right. Um, I mean, have you had any confrontations with fans? In Tennessee or Mississippi, people who aren't expecting that from the the concert that they showed up to see. Man, I th- I think usually, if folks have a problem with that stuff, um, for the most part, they just leave. Like we uh, in the South, I'll say I haven't. I can't think of any real confrontations over that stuff that I've okay. seen. And I, and I think part of it is like that I'm so grateful for is that our shows 
feel a lot of times like very intentionally together uh, and and uh, I'm really grateful for that but you know it's like when folks are at our shows when we're all there together it feels like we're on the same page and sure. we're and, and it's not like a there's a positive feeling to mm-hmm. it you know what I mean yeah but 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 it's also a, a strong and together feeling so I I feel like if uh I mean, if, if I were somebody at one of our shows who was like, man, screw that, you know, I don't know that I would. <laughs> right. You wouldn't want to pick a fight with the whole crowd. Exactly. Yeah. Right. But, yeah. And and I think that's something that I don't know. I'm like, I'm grateful to have those those moments, you know, with with people. And I will say that, like, the times that we have been confronted and that people will try to, you know, start mess have all been in the north. Oh, really? Which is funny. Yeah. But it's like. New York. We've had that happen in New York City, Boston, Fort Wayne, Indiana. What are they saying when they try to start stuff? They, um, I guess two of the times they didn't talk to us. One time, the time in Indiana, this guy got on to me about like, he was, um, I, I made some comment about, about, uh, Trump and Sessions anti-immigration policies and the wall and all that stuff and how these were means of basically screwing over working people and how those, you know, from my reading of history, like these anti-immigrant movements have um, all is not not only been xenophobic and racist a lot of the time, but they've also been enacted to suppress working class and middle class people wanting their fair share. Sure. And um, I'd said something about that on stage and this guy just like very, very drunk, <laughs> like kind of yeah. like tried to start kind of like, well, you know, listen here kind of thing to me after the after the show. And what was just amazing about it was this guy was living in Indiana, Fort Wayne, Indiana. He was from New Zealand. Wow. Okay. This is an interesting conversation to have. And, yeah. and he wound up getting like real riled up and he, uh, you know, he, he left. Yeah. So I don't know. And then another time, Boston, one time we got started and a guy like went to the door guy um, and said, man, I want my money back. This is, uh, I didn't come here to hear all this stuff. I just, I just want to, I just want to come see some rock and roll and the door guy was like this is rock and roll you know, it's like that's what it's about <laughs> you know, or whatever and like so but again like we were playing when that happened so I didn't yeah. know about that till after the show but you know maybe people would be surprised or maybe not but most of that has happened outside of the south for sure sure yeah well I mean punk in general isn't the most subtle music obviously <laughs> yeah. um, and I think y'all were famously thrown out of a bar as being too loud for Texas um <laughs> But, I mean, your lyricism is I mean, subtle. You know, you're seamlessly working in Walker Percy references, uh, the Birmingham author, metaphor and, and Christian motifs, but also, you know, Angela Davis and Eric Robert Rudolph and this sort of clash of, of Birmingham and in mm. Alabama. How does that resonate, you know, once you get outside of the city and outside of the state? You know, is there a universal quality to that music? I certainly hope so. And, and it's interesting because when, uh, when, when you ask, like, 
if I run, if we run into people having kind of applying or projecting those like dualistic, simplistic ideas of the South on us. And I said, like, the, fur, the further away from the South we get. Also, I feel like s- some of the folks I've talked to who have sort of most deeply explored and related to our songs have been very far away from the South, yeah. which is awesome. And like, I guess it was about a year ago was the first time we went to a bunch of places in continental Europe. And man, I had several conversations with folks in Spain who, I mean, I just had these long conversations with and they wanted to talk about the details of the lyrics of the songs and how they related to them through their experience. And mm-hmm. um, talked to one fella who's like a Catalonian rights activists and he was talking about like the the tension between the uh, vernacular and like a place-based culture and the the sort of a nationalizing and like whitewashing identity you know and the tension there and the way that plays out in politics and economics and in Spain and another fellow who's like a architect and planner from the Basque country talking about, you know, the ways that development in rural places and smaller cities and, and the, the more, I don't know the term they would use, but I guess the parts of Spain that aren't Madrid or Barcelona, sure. you know what I mean? Yeah. The, the more like provincial, rural I guess, area. or rural, yeah. Yeah. The, the way that these national trends of development are sort of exploit these places and people there and stuff. So it's like, you know, I get to I have those conversations with people and man, I'm just really grateful what I hope. And, you know, the art that I love is focused on place and on the specific, but it gives a to me a stronger sense of the universal when it's done well you know mm-hmm. and Flannery O'Connor like who's maybe my favorite fiction writer she said that every artist operates at a peculiar crossroads of time and place through which they can glimpse the infinite or something mm-hmm. like that and you know just that that idea of like the more that we focus on our place and time you know and try to look under that and around that and through that, like the more that reveals to any human, yeah. you know what I mean? There's a similar <clears throat> Faulkner quote about thousands of stories that he can tell in his own postage stamp size yes. piece of land. Yes. The, those interactions that are happening here on the micro level, similar things are happening around the world. Right. At school in New York, Lee's literature professors didn't teach much Southern literature. No William Faulkner, no Flannery O'Connor, no Walter Percy. Instead, Lee took a summer course at Mississippi State and began to read those works on his own, eventually weaving them into his music. After the break, we discuss how Lee and the Glory Fires got picked up by the biggest punk label in the world, his relationship with the Alabama Shakes, and how Atlanta compares to New York. Hey folks, my name is Ike Morgan and we are Down in Alabama. 
Now we're literally down in Alabama covering as much as we can from Lookout Mountain to Mobile Bay and every other corner of the state. And Down in Alabama is also the name of our show. We spend three to five minutes daily going over a handful of news and culture stories that are a mix of the top stories and the most overlooked stories and sometimes just the most Alabama stories of the day. Now there's not a strict definition of the most Alabama stories of the day, but you know them when you see them. So y'all come on by and give us a listen and bring a sense of humor because we try not to take ourselves too seriously. The show is called Down in Alabama and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, and most anywhere you listen to your podcasts or through the flash briefing on your Amazon Alexa device. Welcome back. Lee grew up going to an Episcopal church in Birmingham and today goes to a Baptist church in Atlanta. And while the Glory Fires would hardly be considered a Christian rock group, the icons and imagery of his faith are woven throughout Lee's music. And you work Christian imagery very deeply into your music. Uh, your first album with Lee Payne's The Glory Fires is There's a Bomb in Gilead, <laughs> which is a nice little twist on There is a Balm in Gilead, which I, I understand was this, you know, sort of medicine meant to spiritually heal Israel. Right. So as you're moving, you know, sort of this savior rhetoric in with kind of the violence of the South, mm. is that something you set out to do before you write the music? Um, you know, do you have lyrics in mind and then the music accompanies it or how does that work? Well, that song was uh, inspired by initially my like just mishearing that mm. song because my, my uh, grandma was a choir director for, she was a choir director in the Methodist church for how long was it? It was something like 70 years. She, she, she started (laughs) directing the, and she said, I've been, what she said, she's like, I'm directing the, or I've been singing with the Methodists for 70 years, except for my couple of years of missionary work with the Baptists. (laughs) 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 And, uh, but they, they sang, you know, there's a Balm and Gilead in their church. And uh, when I was little, I just heard them sing it. And I was like, why are we singing about a bomb? Right. <laughs> you know, right, like right, right. This seems very yeah. weird. I being like kind of a weird kid of afraid to ask questions, I guess. I just like started making up reasons for like, what is the bomb? Like I was thinking about, you know, is, is Jesus the bomb or is Herod the bomb or what's the bomb, you know? And like, and, uh, when I finally just was perplexed enough to actually ask somebody, they were like, no, that's not, (laughs) but by that time it was already like in my head. And it was, I mean, obviously many years later I was reading about the Israeli shelling of Gaza and, uh, thinking about the, the fact that, at this point in time, there is essentially a, a bomb. I mean, there are literal bombs in Gilead. And thinking about, and my grandparents had both passed, I think, at this point. And I was just thinking about their faith and like what I learned from watching them because they had a very, what, what I would describe as a very gentle and abiding and a very strong but open-handed faith. I was thinking about like what that faith would have to say about 
these home demolitions and bombings and intrusions on civil and human rights and in Gaza and the West Bank. So that's so that's what that song And in is some ways you about. address that kind of idea directly with the company man because mm. uh, your grandmother I understand yes. went to church with Bull Connor. Exactly. And so you know not in Gaza but here at home in Birmingham and you talk a little bit about obviously another bombing Eric Robert Rudolph of the Women's Center in Birmingham, I think, happened when you were in sixth grade. That's Yeah, I think that's right. Sixth grade, yeah. And so at what point did you decide, okay, I'm going to you know address Birmingham warts and all? Because there's obviously been a lot of musicians who have come out of Alabama in recent mm. years. Um, and they are doing similar things to what you're doing, where you're you know, twisting a lot of sounds and styles of Southern rock and blues and punk and country. But not all of them are directly engaging the complex history of where they came mm. from. Was that something that you always wanted to do or is that something that you started to do more with de-reconstructed? I think I started doing it more <clears throat> with de-reconstructed for sure. Why? You know, I, I think like I look back on our first album and uh, it, it's, I almost think about it like in just where I was at that time in my life and I'd, a lot of those songs I'd written, I guess, just having moved back home. Mm-hmm. I mean, as an outsider, in some ways, it feels like you're kind of trying on Southern music. I mean, you've got some of the slide guitar and Almond Brothers kind of feel. Right. And, you know, you have some of the slower music, slower moving, country infused stuff. Whereas, yes. I mean, Dereconstructed is 35 minutes of just pure <laughs> high energy punk rock. Right. But then, you know, I mean, on Youth Detention, you kind of go back and you have some of that slower um, country-infused stuff. With right. The leap from There is a Bomb in Gilead to De-Reconstructed, mm-hmm. was, that, was that you going more towards the sound that you want to be, or was that going towards the sound that Sub Pop wanted you to be? Oh, definitely not. Okay. The second, yeah. Um, no, the it, it was definitely where I wanted to be, and but I think... Like that, the first record I think was in a way like a love letter to the South uh-huh. in a sense and to Alabama. And looking, and, and I was trying to like tease out some of those complications too, but I, in that first record, and I think as it persisted, as, as like we were playing these songs live, you know, off the first record and moving forward, a lot of the what I thought were subtlety in those first songs, I started to think like, I, I don't think they were subtle as much as they were oblique or something. And um, so I set out in the second record to, I guess just get it off my chest a little more to be more direct, sure. um, to be more explicit in what I was talking and, and, and still to do it. And, you know, and that's the balance, like right. try to do that in a, in a way that, that is still artful and nuanced and all yeah. that. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, but no, ironically, like when you asked if that was a kind of at the suggestion of sub pop, like we, cut that record with the expectation that our first label would put it out uh-huh. and um, sent it to him. And he was like, hell no, I'm not putting this out. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. He was like, man, it's, it sounds crazy. Like, I'm not putting that out. Was that, that because out. of the lyrics or was it because of the, uh, um, just the mixing? I don't think it was, was the it? lyrics so much because he, the, the fellow who ran our first label, Alive, it was always 
very supportive of like my lyrical style mm-hmm. but it was like the sound like it, it yeah. was sonically it's definitely in very, your face yeah, yeah. He, he was like it's way, it just sounds crazy yeah. <laughs> yeah. like it sounds yeah. too abrasive and whatever And it's the kind of music it, that you have to read the lyrics as you're listening to it I'm yes to yes right but okay so then you had already cut the record oh yeah yeah we'd cut the record and we were just like man who's gonna put this out like you know and I, I was freaking out the fellow who produced that album and and youth detention and he had, we recorded bomb and gilead once before mm-hmm. the one that came out and he produced the first version we did and um his name's tim kerr and he's like a texas punk guy and he recorded a bunch of alabama bands in the 90s okay. the dex teens before i joined him for my little stint in there and then he did uh the quadrajets and some manor astro man stuff but anyway he, I asked Tim if he knew of any labels that might want to put this out because he, he just knows a lot of like kind of small garage punk labels and sure. stuff. He was like, well, I know some people at Sub Pop and I was like, eh, I mean, don't, you know, don't waste the postage. <laughs> right, <laughs> like, right. But, right. you know, check, you know, yeah. do you know anybody? Because Sub Pop, like, I mean, for our listeners <laughs> who don't know, is you know, that's the label that Nirvana and Soundgarden, I mean, it was kind of the punk label out of Seattle. Yes. And so it's, it defined the genre. Yes. And now and he's going to send your record off at them. Right. And now they're like, you know, after Nirvana and the whole grunge thing happened, they, are, they're like a really big label now. They're, they're technically an indie label, but they're probably the biggest indie label in in the u.s i would think okay so i was just like man there's no way there you know and he was like well just let me email it to him or whatever and so then like i mean we were shocked but, right but, right but uh but the guy jonathan poneman at sub pop who's one of the founders there were two guys who founded it and he was one of the founders of it and he he was like i, I really like this and i want to talk to you about it i want to put it out and stuff so it, it was pretty shocking and if anything, it's like that's just kind of, you know, because sometimes because that was a record I wanted to make, you know, that's a record I had in my head. And like, honestly, like we lost our original bass player and guitar player, I think partly quit the band because that's where I, that's where Blake that's and I are drummer. That's where yeah. we wanted to go. And they were like, I don't know about this. And so, it, I mean, it was a really pretty, honestly, like a pretty scary time there where I was like, man, I don't, I don't know if anybody is going right. to want to hear this or you've been in bands to play on it. Kind of broken up before I mean, the Dexatines. Yep. obviously. Sure. Um, so there was a moment you thought this is just falling apart. Yeah, totally. But it's like, you know, it's like the only reason that I've write music or play music is I, I, I want to make something that I want to hear. You know what I mean? Right. Like I'm, I'm right. trying to bring something into the world that, and if I, don't do that then I don't really see the point in it you know what I mean so we and Blake was on board and Eric and Adam wound up joining the band and and they were on board and that's the record we made and we were like all right this is it this is what the statement we wanted to make and then it's like nah this sucks you know (laughs) I don't want it and we were like oh my god you know but it's like I don't know if it you know, I have a tendency towards freak outs and it's like, that's just a good piece of evidence in my past. It's like, if, if I just focus on the art itself and on the work itself, then it's like, things will work out. I can't really control 
what happens after that. But with that record, I mean, Jonathan Poneman, I know he told Chuck Reese at the Bitter Southerner that, you know, you were the future of rock and roll. <laughs> and uh, Rolling Stone, I think in 2014, had y'all as 10 artists to watch. Mm. What were your expectations for that record once it was picked up by Sub Pop? I mean, did you think that was going to kind of catapult you into the next level? Um, or what is, I mean, what is that level that yeah. you're trying to get to? I mean, I don't, you know... I think fortunately, I honestly didn't have very many expectations. Yeah, which I'm which I'm grateful for now because I think that a uh, like if a label the size of our first label had put out Dereconstructed, it probably would have done about the same. Yeah, you know what I mean. I, I think the fact that and, and I'm grateful for like my experiences in the past with bands and from learning from other people who've been in bands and thankful for the three guys in our band because those again like just trying to focus on the work itself makes this whole thing go a lot better <laughs> because because if you know if if you do start getting into expectations and trying to get a certain result and stuff like that, then that's like, you're, you're screwed. Were you working a day job at that time? Mm, yeah. Okay, so you've always worked. Yeah. Always worked. In order yeah. to support the music. Yep. Always. Yeah. Um, so what do you do when you go on tour? You just take time off of work? Or yeah, man, we all, you know, we all just have jobs that we, we've just all figured out how to have jobs that allow us to be gone yeah. a lot. You know? You're <laughs> like, living in Atlanta and working in the movie business. Is that right? Well, yeah. I mean, sort of. I, I work like I work at a movie studio. Okay. So I don't work on the productions themselves. What do you do? But uh, I work maintenance. Cool. So yeah. And so you can take time off and go tour as needed. Uh, you got an upcoming gig at South by Southwest, uh, yes. which is exciting. Yeah, we're excited um, about that. And then with the reconstructed, you toured the country uh, as the opener for the Alabama Shakes. We when was that? We we did that tour open for them. That was on their first headline tour. Okay. So that was like 2012. Okay, I think so was it was when our first record came out. Yeah. And we we've opened with we've opened for them a few times since then. Mm -hmm. But that's the only like full tour that we went on with them. What was that like? But. Man, it was really weird because, like, I think it maybe only been a year before, if even that long, maybe six or nine months before, they had opened for us at Egan's in Tuscaloosa. Oh, really? yeah. Yes. Okay. And then we all loved them, you know, and we're just like trying to get them on more shows that we were playing in Tuscaloosa. And uh, we were playing a, like, on the um, what's it called the Bama Bell I think the the riverboat mm -hmm. Black Warrior yes there's um, Bo Hicks down there was having like a booze cruise kind of thing on on the Bama Bell and had asked us to play and I was like man can, can we get the shakes on the show too and he's like yeah for sure let's do that and um, in the time between when we got them on the show and the show happening that's when the word has started to really get out about them mm -hmm. So by the time the show came around, there, I don't know if it was like a manager or like a label owner, somebody 
for them had like flown down from New York and to like go to this sh- show on the booze cruise oh, <laughs> and wow. everything. Yeah. And like, and it was, and they like, uh, they opened the bar. They just like pay, they're just like, we got it. So like every, yeah. so it was pretty crazy. And then within six months of then, probably we were opening for the shakes on like a nationwide, like sold out tour. Yeah. And it was just like, dude, this is wild. You know, this is yeah. just insane how, how all that happened. I mean, it couldn't happen to nicer, more talented you still folks. Collaborate um, keep in touch. Man, I haven't, it's like we do occasionally, but I haven't really. They haven't got a record in, in years. Yeah, it's been a while. Three, four years at least. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess Brittany Howard has cut some records with other projects. Yeah, yeah. Well, obviously, you know, you you have a song on, um, I think it's Dear Reconstructed, maybe Youth Detention, you know, Nail My Feet to the South Side of Town. Yeah. And then you move to Atlanta. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, what took you from Birmingham to Atlanta? Well, that one I'd written, that was on youth detention. So I'd been in Atlanta. Yeah, I'd been there for quite a while at that time. Yeah, it's weird, man. Like, I bet we'd only had this band going for six months and I moved to Atlanta. And the reason I moved is just my, my then girlfriend, now wife, was living over there. And uh, we met in high school. She is also, she's from here also. And uh, we kind of met through the kind of punk scene in, in Birmingham and just, you know, became real good friends. Then we dated for a while when I was in New York in school and she was in Atlanta. Didn't, you know, that was just hard to make work. But then after I moved back home and I'd been here for a while, we reconnected and she was applying to grad school and she was like, well, I'm either going to grad school in Chicago or Atlanta. And I was just like, please Atlanta. Cause I can deal with Atlanta. You know, yeah. I can, I, that's close enough. You yeah. Know? Yeah. That's, I tell her all the time. It's like, if you ever have any doubt of like, how much I love you. The the fact that I would I, there's no other reason I would move to Atlanta. I'll yeah. put it that way. There's so, not no a other reason. <laughs> <laughs> and now that I've been there, like I, there are things that I appreciate about yeah. it. Yeah, like in particular for her, like I think that you know, because for me, it's like I can tour in a band and find a a job anywhere, you know, yeah. anywhere. And honestly, here probably easier than in Atlanta. But but yeah, for her and what she wants, she's an architect and is and a city planner is real focused on equitable development. And cool. it's just, you know, that's, that's, it's a hard thing to find work in anywhere, you know, but it's like the bigger the city you're in, the easier it is, I guess. And um, how does Atlanta compare to you in terms of, I mean, obviously Birmingham's home, but right. you know, you lived in New York for four years. Yeah. It's um, funny, man. It's, it's like right between the two. Yeah, it really yeah, is. I'm yeah. just like, man, it's, but in ways, it's more like New York, I think, almost than Birmingham. But having lived in New York makes me look at Atlanta in a much different way. And it's sort of I, I sort of look at it in a sense of what New York is to that part of the Northeast Atlanta kind of is to the deep south, I feel yeah. like, you know. And so there's a lot of people who say that Atlanta, you know, there's the south and then there's Atlanta. Right. And, uh, I mean, do you think of Atlanta as being part of the south? The, the longer I'm there, the 
the more I do, because when I was growing up, it was saying like you just go for a Braves game or, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. SEC championship or whatever, like, and, uh, I just, I hated it. And I yeah. was like, it's, you know, and what I always heard grown up say was like, well, Atlanta's not really the South, you know? And, yeah. But again, like living in New York, because in, in a way, New York, you know, somebody from like Jersey could say about Manhattan, well, that's not really New York right. in a way, you know what I mean? Or yeah. somebody yeah. from Staten Island could say about Manhattan, well, that's not really, you know, whatever. Right. But I, I think a lot of times that's, um, you know, that that's just because those are cities where a lot of people are from all over the place. You know what I mean? Atlanta, that's definitely the case. I mean, there are people from... <laughs> you know, everywhere in the world, you know, and definitely all over the country. And, and, and that's kind of what's interesting about it to me living there now is that it is a city in the South that's in very intense and constant interaction with the world at large. And it's like, I don't always like the way that looks or plays out. Um, What do you mean? Well, a lot of it's, inequitable you know what i mean like atlanta and the atlanta metro is extremely diverse but there's a lot but it's also like very segregated you know along class lines and ethnic lines and racial lines there's Mm -hmm. a lot of disparity well it's i think it's the city in the u.s with the most wealth disparity wow atlanta has a lot of policies that favor you know, your Coca-Cola executive sure. types and, sure. and uh, you know, kind of trample on the uh, immigrant communities and the working class communities in Southwest Atlanta and black communities and stuff. But it's like in other ways, Atlanta kind of shows the a, a potential for the South that I think um, is exciting. And that is the fact that like, man, I, I just can't think of a more, a, a, a place where more people from as many different backgrounds interact yeah. in a way that, that feels more fluid and a little less hectic yeah. <laughs> than maybe somewhere, well, you know, like. And they're know. having a lot of the same conversations I think we have here in Birmingham or around Alabama, where, you know, you've got this fraught racial history, history of inequality, but they've also made a lot more progress than people might assume just looking at old footage of either city. Right. And, you know, how do you honor or memorialize past and present and future? Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of, you know, obviously your music has a lot of protest built into it, but you also kind of inadvertently became the face of a protest. (laughs) Uh, There's a meme circulating of you wearing overalls, holding a sign that says Southern hospitality means welcoming immigrants. Yes. Uh, Right now you're wearing a button uh, as we were recording that says abolish ICE deportations. Why take these stances? I mean, you're, you know, you're a white guy from a, sounds like a fairly upper middle class upbringing. I mean, you went to a nice private school. You went to NYU. Why take these stances? Man, I think like the the reason that I think the immigration question is so important and, and like, I mean, that's a really good question. And living in Atlanta has made this more apparent to me. But if 
we Southerners love the South and we love this place and the cultures here. If we don't welcome newcomers, if we don't welcome change, then we're, we're dead in the water. You know what I mean? Th- those things that we claim to love, the best attributes of those things are going to die because they're, you know, people are moving here, whether you like it or not. And it's like you can either invite them in and build solidarity and build culture with those folks and community with those folks, or you can bunker up mm-hmm. and uh, and waste away. So that's part of it is this like cultural love for the South and its peoples, you know? And uh, the the other part is the fact that there's been a long history in the South of exploiting labor. And it, it goes back to slavery and in Birmingham, it goes back to Jim Crow and convict lease labor. And, and right now, just as recently freed black folks were used as a a whipping boy for the difficulties of white working class people. It's like now, you know, immigrants are being posed as the same thing. And when you look back at the periods where working class folks in Alabama got a leg up, it's the periods where people formed bonds of solidarity with one another instead of blaming each Mm -hmm. other. You know what I mean? And so I guess that's the reason ultimately it's like the reason I think that it's so important to welcome immigrants and through a legal proceeding and have and include them in our country and give them the same uh, protection under the law and hold them accountable to the same laws. Then that's what lifts lifts all of us up and that just seems to and and the reason I want that is because I love this place you know what I mean and I love the and I and I and I love us I love you know what is the south to you is it a place is it a people is it an idea yeah all those (laughs) things things. and 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 plurals (laughs) you know because that because that's the thing too I think is so that I'll one of the things I love about playing in a band is you are going to all these places that you wouldn't go like on vacation if, if you had a long weekend, you wouldn't necessarily spend it in like Beaumont, Texas or in Augusta, Georgia or somewhere like that. Mm-hmm. But the more we travel around, the more seeing that there are many Souths, you know, and and I, I could tell that even just like growing up in Birmingham, there are many Birminghams, you know, right, many right. versions of the South as it kind of filters through Birmingham. But beyond that. It's a it's a really rich collection and you know a yeah. layered group of uh, cultures and people. And do you feel obligated to tell all of those stories, or are you just trying to tell your story? Or? Yeah, just you know, just trying to tell mine, and sure. you know, and like, and that's something that like there there are a lot of writer there are a lot of songwriters who I love who do sort of assume another perspective, a fictional perspective, and stuff like that, but. I would feel disingenuous doing that to assume somebody else's experience or perspective that I would really have no way of being able to see. For that reason, I just, you know, try to stick to my own perspective and experience, you know, however limited and uh, biased that, that is. 
That's the show, folks. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for a clip from next week's show with Reverend William Barber. The show's theme song, Dereconstructed, is produced by Sub Pop Records. It was written and performed by Lee Baines III and the Glory Fires, along with all the other songs featured in this episode. They'll be appearing at the Druid City Music Festival on August 24th. This show is produced and hosted by yours truly, with additional edits by Reckon Radio producer Amy Yerkinen. If you like the show, please subscribe and give us a review on Apple Podcasts and share the show with your friends. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Go to AL.com to sign up for our newsletter and stay up to date on all the latest news in Alabama and around the South. Until next time, thanks for reckoning with us. We have work to do, even as we walk in some of the successes of the past.